welcome to another episode of the Circumpolar People podcast. Today, we will be discussing the Saka Republic. My name is Samantha, and my co-hosts are Johan, Philip, and Thomas. So to start off, we'll be talking about basically the background information, all the need-to-knows of the Saka Republic. Uh, it's also known as Yakutia or the Yakut Saka. It is a republic in northeastern Russia and Siberia and occupies a total of one-fifth of the total territory of Russia, which is um, four times the size of Texas. Really? Fun fact. Um, <laughs> with 40% of its own territory living within the Arctic Circle on thick permafrost year-round and 70% of the territory being mountains and plateaus. Another fun fact is that it has three different time zones, okay? That's the entirety of the United States, just this tiny little... Yeah, just, just in that little area? Yeah, the mainland United States, this small little area has three time zones. And... It contains around 11 cities and 69 towns and 352 villages. It's known for extreme weather conditions, which should be touched on later, and with some of the lowest temperatures ever recorded, it's notorious for long winters and hot, dry summers. So the capital is called Yakutsk, which was founded in 1632 by Russian Cossacks who were just dudes wanting some fur. <laughs> The Yakut are a mixture of local tribes and Turkic groups that migrated from in between the 6th and 10th centuries AD. Because of the Russian conquest, which one of my friends here will be touching on, um, eventually Russia joined, they joined Russia in the first half of the 17th century. By the 19th century, the nomadic people of the Saka had adopted a, sedent a sedentary life where they didn't move, they just, they were very stoic. They didn't, they weren't nomadic, basically. Um, it was created autonomously, if that's how you pronounce it, I don't know, mm -hmm. autonomously, that is how you pronounce with it, the Soviet so. Union in 1922, and it's the largest republic uh, in Russia. I don't know if you guys even know what a, I don't know what autonomously or a republic, an autonomous republic was, so I had to like look it up, I but yeah. it has its own constitution. It's like a state. Really? Like, okay. like, so it's, it's like government. Gover okay. Yes, a government uh -huh. within a government. Um, basically, the definition is a type of administrative division similar to a province or a state. It plays an important economic role within Russia, being one of the main sources for mining and energy, which uh, it's known for 30 known gas and oil fields. Its main means for agriculture is cattle, horse, and reindeer breeding, herding, all of the above, um, which are traditional occupations for most of the population of the Saka. They also rely significantly on hunting, fur farming, and fishing, with most of the production being exported. Um, it doesn't really have tourism because of how the climate is. Um, I would imagine. I ain't going it, over there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the lack of infrastructure due to permafrost, permafrost melting. And it's cold. It's frigid. Yeah. Um, that's not where I'm going for vacation. I'm going somewhere cold. I'll go to Austria or something. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, its main system of transportation is still aviation. All right. So that's basically the background of it. But I do have, like, current events that I wanted to touch on for a little bit because we all know what's going on with the Russian-Ukrainian war. We okay. all know how Putin um, mobilized the entirety of Russia. Well, well, I would sit here and I would think, well, that probably doesn't include them. But apparently it does. And apparently most of their men are gone to war right now, which is a big problem for them because 
you know, that is basically a decimation of an entire culture if anything were to like go crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, there is a, a, a man, a Russian politician named Isen Nikolov, who is a Russian politician who has admitted that there's violations with the process of mobilization and said that work was underway to return the public to some men, return to the public, her public, some mobilized by mistake. Um, but, but thousands of indigenous men from the Sakharov Republic have been sent to war to Ukraine. And some are even fleeing, like leaving the country entirely. And they, I don't think you can come back from that. How is it, is it like, do you, you know if it's like a drafting system yeah, or that's if pretty it's much what it voluntarily? Is. No, it's, it's it was Putin who came out and said, it's "We're a mobilizing." Draft. It's oh, a massive Jesus. draft of the entire country of Russia. So it's not just it's not just the soccer republic that got drafted. It's all like it's the other republics that are within there too. So Putin came on and said, "I don't care about your else culture. Yeah. You're going to go fight for my country." That's why they're saying that so. there's been some violations in the process. And unlike here in America, where it's Pretty much, if you're the only male in a family, you can't be drafted or yeah. things like that. They're I imagine they don't have very many rules about this stuff. Yeah. No, I don't think they do either, and that's why everybody's fleeing. Well, I think that is it for my portion of it, which went pretty well, I, th I believe. You know, you know? Russian I politics get very hairy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Even in the world Full pun intended. So now it's off to my friend Johan, who is touching on the ro Russian. Oh, no. it's my Me. friend Thomas, <laughs> touching on the Russian conquest. Yeah, research in this section was actually to find out some big numbers. Like when the Russians first started to invade, like the Sakha Republic, they took out nearly seventy percent of their population in the first oh conquest. God. So a lot of the websites that I went through and my sources consider it genocide. Like in their titles of it is considered a genocide of the Saha Republic. Um, so in the 17th century is when they started, they moved east, they took, I don't even know how I'm gonna say this, the <laughs> Kanate of Siberia, Siberia. And the, the Taigan, that's a lot of Y's in one word, a king in the Nagalaski Saka. He um, he pretty much just gave the territory to them after free real estate. Yeah, in return of for a military pact and included against war. It included war against indigenous people in Northeast Asia. So he pretty much just gave them the land to try to make them stop killing everyone because there's no way that they had any chance of fighting against the Russian army. That was yeah. pretty much. They had like this tiny little portion of Russia while they had to fight against the other like 80% of Russia. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, after, after that pact, even though Putin said he'd leave them alone and stuff, after he took their land, they were pretty much, I don't want to use slaves, but they were second class, very abused, very mistreated, you could say. Wait, so this was recent? No, not, I wouldn't say it does leak into recently, but the way they were treated is not, it's not really the same. They're still considered second-class citizens because they're indigenous people in Russia, but they're, the way that they are now is a lot better than during the 17th century when they were first being invaded. Um, yeah, they're definitely amongst, out of all the indigenous tribes, one of the richest yeah. in the country. Yeah. 
whole and they're city still treated fucking... terribly. Yeah. I wasn't this Soccer Republic kind of like an exile place too. Oh yeah. I feel like that's where they sent people to like. Yeah, I'm going to talk yeah, about oh. <laughs> oh, John. Yeah, it's almost so. like a prison. I have to wait a couple of minutes for that. <laughs> <laughs> but when the when the USSR fell, so when the communist Russia fell and the Russian Federation was established, which we know today, the during the 1990s, which is what I was saying, leaking into more recent days, the economy from that transition is still affecting them. Whereas main, like the most of Russia has recovered mostly from it. There's still definitely suffering effects mm-hmm. from that transition yeah. from the communist regimes. But the Saha, just without as many of the resources, the people that mainland Russia has being indigenous and stuff, trying to live by their like traditional values are suffering really badly from that transition. And it's really, I mean, it's just hard to recover from that, I would mm-hmm. imagine, moving from mm-hmm. communists not having pretty much any rights or anything. So even with the Russians outnumbered, the Saha, the Saha regained strength, and they, they definitely put up a fight for a little while, but they definitely couldn't, they couldn't hold them off for very long. There was actually, I found a quote from a Saha representative living in the United States today. He said, in quote, the Russians would kill the men, rape the women and children. My ancestors resisted, but the technology advantage allowed the Russians to quickly conquer all the Yakuta. So it was brutal. Don't know if I can say that. (laughs) Doesn't surprise me. Yeah, me either. So, yeah, you could say the Russians held nothing back against the small little area that they held, the Russians felt the need to bring everything they got. I, I mean, even the fact that... Power imbalance. Yeah. yeah. Putin doesn't care. <laughs> Putin doesn't care. <laughs> it's like even today with in Ukraine, they have reports coming out in regards to the Russian soldiers doing the same thing still. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Ukraine is like just a small little piece. I mean, the Saha... I, is it smaller? It's your, bigger. It's, is it bigger? It's, yeah, you, it's you said it was bigger. three times the size of Texas. Texas yeah. yeah. Which Texas? Yeah, Ukraine. It's pretty big. I'm trying yeah. to think of your size. You, Ukraine, Ukraine is, is a decent size. It's like literally. Size, but yeah, it's very small. It's probably the size yeah. of North Carolina. Yeah. To be specific. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just even the fact that, just relating that to that is, mm-hmm. with how much force that he's putting in, because I mean, you could almost, it's very similar in the fact that. Ukrainians are putting up such a big fight against them the same way the Saha did with how little population they have compared to them and military force Mm -hmm. and just how brutal they're treating them. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I wanted to uh, pass it along to... Yeah, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, like, Saha Republic during the Russian... Uh, after Russian occupation and also then during the Soviet era. So the Saha Republic was officially formed, you can say, in 1805, uh, with the old name, which was the Yakust Oblast. Uh, this was due to some uh, administration reforms, I think, within the Russian Empire. Um, and it started to develop a little bit during like the late 19th century, uh, with the introduction of agriculture, of uh, wheat, oats, and potatoes, um, mostly, and also the fur trade, which expanded, which caused um, the region to move into a more of a cash economy, uh, 
mm-hmm. you could say. Uh, also, some industry started at that point, but it would be growing w- much more during the Soviet era. Uh, and this was due to what Samantha talked about earlier, uh, a lot of exiles who came from from Western Russia who had done either were like doing agriculture there or at least aware of, aware of the agriculture and like brought it in to the Tsar Republic, you could say. So a little bit about Sakha's remoteness. Uh, I looked it up, like, if, and I want you guys to, to guess now. Uh, <laughs> if you're driving from Yakutsk, the capital of Tsar Republic, to Moscow without any stops or anything like that, how long do you think it's going to take today? Like it's got it's to be, be right? over a day. With how well big Russia, it's got to be well over a day. Like four or five days, something like that? Yeah. Like, in, like an hour, so it's like an approximate. In an hour? Like in hours. Oh, oh, in hours oh God. Hours. Oh, my God. I'll say 36 I'm hours. I'm going to somewhere around 72. 72? I think it's going to be like three days. 72. Somewhere between 38 oh and 72 God. hours. Yeah, I think it's like three days. Okay, so it's 113 hours. <gasps> no way. <laughs> <laughs> so that's... That's sick. Is that over four days or still under four days? 113. Three, three days is 72, right? Six yeah, days is 72. That's a 96. That's six days? Or no, wait, wait. What? That's no, sorry. Three days. <laughs> Thinking uh, months, my bad. <laughs> yeah, 96 hours would be four days. So. Yeah. Did it tell you how many miles it was? So, yeah, I thought I read almost, it was like 1,800. It's almost five days. Yeah, it's roughly five days. Uh, without any stops. And driving through. Could you imagine doing that in the winter? Yeah. yeah it yeah. took me three days to get to California. <laughs> no, Col- Colorado. I know it's three days to get to California without stopping. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, um, and even if you look at like in the other direction towards uh, Vladivostok, I think you pronounce it, which is like the main uh, eastern port city of Russia, it's 40 hours, God. which is the same amount if you drive nonstop between Los Angeles and New York. So literally yeah, I mean, the middle of nowhere. If you yeah. look at the size of Russia, like just between cities, is like, because I mean, you go from like Cincinnati to Cleveland's only four hours. Like that's, this like maybe an inch compared to moving <laughs> a yard on a map, com- like moving across well, Russia. Yeah. You have like, to think that the Republic is literally just plateaus and mountains. It's yeah. not like it's just flat land. There's no interstate you can drive I mean, on. you could probably go from like California to North Carolina on a straight route faster than you could go. <laughs> Like, grow to anywhere in Russia. Like, yeah. Uh, and this, and you have to remember when the exiles and such happened, like, that was before cars, before, like, a lot of infrastructure and such. Damn. Which Horse and wagon yeah. <laughs> for 12 days <laughs> in the which, freezing cold. Which was, Riding on the reindeers. Yeah, which was one of the reasons why it was so effective for them. Uh, so it started during the Tsar, like, before the Soviet Union. At first it was religious group, I believe. Uh, then some uh, socialist revolutionaries, like before the revolutions happened, uh, and then during the USSR, this kept uh, happening with political uh, dissidents and such like that. Um, so speaking about the revolutions, the Sahar Republic had a pretty big role in both of the revolutions, both in the, both the failed 1905 and the later successful in 1917. So in, I think in 1905, at least according to my research, it was like when the first nationalist movement in the Tsar Republic developed uh, as a like counter to Russian colonialism which they uh, yeah believed that it was uh, and in, or- in order to like preserve their culture and preserve the language and such like that uh, and then l- later during the October Revolution in 1917 a lot of the 
the white Russians, like the anti-Bolshevik Russians, both in the Sahar Republic and also in general in Russia, came to the Sahar Republic to like gather and like fight against the the Bolsheviks. Uh, initially, they get a lot of helps also from the Allies during the First World War, like USA, UK, France, yeah. Japan, and such like that. Um, but the Western Allies quickly stopped their their support after like a year. Uh, while the Japani- Japanese kept it going for a little bit. Um, but they eventually lost. In, and in April 27, 1922, uh, formerly the Yakut ASSR was formed as, a part, as an autonomous part of the Russian SFSR in the Soviet Union. Um, and during the Soviet era, first it, uh, it started kind of well for them, actually, because uh, the Soviets had a policy called coronization, I think is how you call it, uh, at least in English. Uh, <laughs> no idea. Uh, which is, um, it was done to like promote ethnic and cultural diversity in the Soviet Union and like end the, the earlier repression of it during the Tsar. Um, an increase, for example, by doing that, they, they would like increase power for minorities in the government and such like that and uh, include the programs in local languages, not just in Russian. Uh, and this was something that uh, the Bolsheviks had actually started to think about before the revolution. So uh, one one example of this is in 1913, when uh, actually uh, Joseph Stalin was sent to uh, Vienna, which at that point was like a multicultural city in Europe, to like study how they did it and like uh, such like that. And this is obviously very ironic because colonization would be active for like 20 years I think until it ended <laughs> during Joseph Stalin so I don't know what to say about that really um, and moving into the second world war then uh, the Tsar Republic was as we've been touched before uh, pretty important there as well um, and this was in what I could uh, research at least three main ways uh, the first was like resource extraction. So uh, Saudi Republic is very rich in resources. Um, for example, coal, gold, and diamonds, which could be, which was critical to both like finance the war effort, but also directly in form of coal. For example, you can use mm-hmm. that directly to to uh, support uh, the efforts. Uh, also, in the <clears throat> when it comes to military defense, so because of Saha's remoteness, a lot of like the main not to call it by the main military hubs and such like that, was transformed to the Sahara Republic because it was so far from the, the front. Uh, so they would be sure that like they wouldn't be invaded there, essentially. Uh, so a lot of uh, transport hubs was transferred there. Also, like, medical facilities that treating soldiers was there. Uh, and also, lastly, for shelter for refugees from the, uh, the front uh, was, again, sent for the same reason. Like, there was... So, uh, so far from like the, the front and such. Um, I was actually just thinking about like World War II, like how the Saha would have played a role in the World War Two, being up north. Oh, yeah. Like, could you imagine if like the north during that time if it was penetrable? Because I mean, you couldn't really attack from northern Russia. There's no way you could oh, get yeah. a ship through there. But like Saha would have played like a huge role protecting their northern flank because mm-hmm. a lot of the push came from west to east with the. Axis powers pushing in, and they ended up going Did a Russia lot. Did Russia get invaded? 
mostly yeah. a lot of it yeah yeah they invaded so much and then they weren't prepared for like the weather and everything so yeah. russia kind of just pushed them right back yeah, <laughs> they, the, the easiest way to put it is uh he got a little cocky and he uh tried to keep going yeah. during the winter and russians were able to push back re like rebuild and then damn and down expect, down yeah. went the then the two fronts then down went germany yeah, so, and to finish off a little bit with the, like, post-war uh, South Republic, so the earlier mentioned national resources kept getting uh, uh, exploited. So, for example, they built a lot of mines, built a lot of, built one diamond mine, for example, which has, at the time was the largest diamond mine in the world. In, in the Sahara Republic? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, probably the one in, what, Yakut? Uh, I don't, I don't think I wrote down the name, but yeah. Um, uh, and then also during the the space race between the USSR and the United States, uh, the oh, Sar yeah. Republic was very important in that. Uh, they had uh, the Baikonur Cosmodrome, I think it's pronounced. Uh, which <laughs> I couldn't is, tell you if it's written in front of me. So. <laughs> the Cosmodrome, which yeah. was the uh, the main space hub, I think, in the United uh, in the USSR. Um, and also because of the climate, because it's so cold, it was also very useful to like do scientific expeditions there, mm-hmm. to, like study it. Um, and also during the, the general like Cold War, um, the, that was going on, a lot of military bases was built there, especially in the north, because it has such a big, it's it's so big first of all, and it has like the big coastline uh, mm-hmm. in the Arctic. <clears throat> and then lastly in. In the 70s and 80s, a lot of like major infrastructure products were conducted, which uh, was imp- very important for like improved connection between uh, uh, between like the Tsar Republic and like the rest of Russia and such like that. Uh, yeah, so that was basically the the Tsar Republic during the Ru- Russian occupation and also during the Soviet Union. So. You say a lot, you? Of, a lot of stuff went down during that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, I guess it's up to me now. <laughs> I get the fun job of talking about all the modern-day culture. So as of recently, from the video that we had watched, uh, the city of Yakut, which is one of the coldest in the, the entire world, broke a record for the coldest day at negative 84 degrees Fahrenheit. It was cold enough to freeze your oil within (laughs) 10 minutes. Like, uh, they also, for them, broke a record for having 101 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer, which, coincidentally, they all went on vacation to the little beach on the lake and went surfing. Mm. How do you not get, like, because, I mean, you get sick when it changes, like, weather and temperatures really rapid. Like, how do they just adapt to that so well? Well, it does... Plant life even really grow? Do they? I have would imagine. Yeah, they get grass and things. Well, grass doesn't that, count. I'm talking like flowers and trees that like throw pollen everywhere, like here. Imagine they don't survive for very long. Exactly. <laughs> they they do have a very big mosquito problem. Though. Oh, do they? Oh. Yeah. It's like it's it's bad. What the? Heck? In the cold climate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can barely handle the mosquitoes here. They also have a uh, a little tunnel that. You can go in as for tours and stuff, so you can actually see the permafrost in the ground to see how deep oh, it goes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty cool. 
They have tourist attractions in mm. a negative 80 degree weather. <laughs> With little ice slides that you can go around on. Uh, also, the Saha people celebrate New Year's twice a year. Once in the winter, once in the summer. Uh, the winter festival is more traditional in terms of its singing and dancing. Summer, while still traditional, tends to be more... Uh, modern so to say they have their own djs that go out there and they'll have raves and everything and wait if they celebrate new year's twice a year does that mean they're in the year what 40 46 <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> they're way ahead of us time traveling it might just be like kind of like in china how they do like lunar new years yeah. like a new moon or something like that uh, yeah. you know don't gotta be an actual they're, new year they're just way past us and <laughs> they go out there they've got a. Uh, like their garments are all decked out in gems and diamonds and things wow. like that. They said the average like little headdress and little chest piece is like twenty pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so right. imagine just being out there, just put a DJ going and raving, just dancing to that. Dancing with twenty pound jewelry. Mm -hmm. You can get a bouncer <laughs> <laughs> for days. This this is not even a one day thing. So it's. I wonder how much one of those like headpieces worth on the black market yeah. with all the gems and yeah. stuff in it. Damn. I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, also during this, they have what they call the round dance, which is their way of celebrating the fertility, as they want want to uh, call what? it. Fertility, <laughs> yeah. Fertility. You know, things indigenous people do. You just dance around all the time. Yeah, and then the singer that leads that completely improvises the song so there's no set song that they have to sing and they just have to repeat whatever lyrics that singer says uh also during this they have their own little olympics called the djinn and yes i understand the word djinn means something else here what does it mean <laughs> what is that degenerate Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but for them... Oh I thought it was like some kind of party. Yeah. Missing out. <laughs> you can look at it that way. But it's uh, seven competitions over two days. They average roughly 200,000 people that oh, sit there really? and actually like, yeah. That's pretty good. It's pretty solid. Versus like... That's like Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. Or like... What's the other one? It's like a Bengals game. Oh, no. <laughs> Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo, Mardi Gras, like... Yeah. Big, all those... Yeah. What is it? New Orleans parties. Festivals? Don't remind me. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what you would call them. But uh, all these competitions are based off things that they taught their warriors in history. For, uh, for day one, they start out with something simple, which is called a three-on-three -three jump where essentially you take one foot, do three jumps, then you alternate to do three jumps, and then you do a rabbit jump three times, all in succession. And the person with the best distance and results is declared the winner. From there, they go on to do wrestling, which you know is what we're all familiar with, but there's no weight classes. So, yeah, you can be a little scrawny guy going up <laughs> against, you know, a 400-pound beefcake. <laughs> and after two rounds of defeat, you're eliminated until they get all the way down to the last person standing. 
And then they have what is called the Saha Turntable, which is essentially... Everybody takes a turn and fights this one guy. Uh, that'd be nice. But <laughs> they, take, they take a big stick, put one end in the ground, keep their hands planted, and then have to bend it into loops, kind of like a, a silly straw. What? And they cannot adjust their hands or move their hands. It has to go as many times as they can. With a stick? Yes. How does it not break? I don't I have no idea. <laughs> it is. It's it is I bend a stick, it breaks. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's like as thick as a like an actual can too. Wow. What? So yeah, they're literally like going full force to try to get this full body weight What's just dangling from it. Make a silly Who, straw. Yeah, whoever gets the most is the winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then after that. They'll count it down, narrow it down, try to get to 12 people. If there's more than 12 that actually qualify, they just go and eliminate whoever had the worst times. That's just the qualifier? That's just the qualifier. <laughs> and then for day two, it tends to get more into things that we're familiar with, like archery, which isn't just shooting at a target. They have a bunch of, like, brick-sized targets laying down on the ground. They get two practice shots and then five rounds of one shot and try to score as many points as they can get. So you gotta, you know, you're aiming at a little target on the ground. Yeah, so whoever gets the most points wins that. <laughs> they have a pretty uh, standard point system, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, then they have what is called stick wrestling, oh, which is unique... To the Saha Republic, where you have pretty much a block of wood in between two contestants. They put their feet on the block, and then each one holds a stick, and then they have to try to pull the other person over the the wow. yeah the block of so wood. So almost like the tug of war, war like yeah, the almost war. like tug of war. <laughs> it's like warrior, like you stand on the beam and you have to like try to hit each other off. Is that similar? Is that what I'm getting? No, you're thinking pugils. Is that what that is? I didn't yeah. know what it was called. <laughs> I just know how I enjoy doing it. Yeah, it's almost like tug of war where they're sitting down on their butt, grabbing the stick, and then just trying to pull oh, the other person. Okay. Out. Oh God, that sounds like it hurts. And that's all in which is the best of three, and then from there they start eliminating more people. And then they have a 400 meter race, so all of them go full sprint to see who wins it's the easiest one out there. <laughs> so you don't have to be the strongest person to do it. Uh, it, they used to joke, and I will not even attempt to pronounce the word for what they call it, but the English translation was running after the girl, oh. which they don't say anymore because it's kind of outdated in their views. <laughs> and then the final competition they have is a boulder carry. So they're taking a big boulder, roughly 240 to 260 pounds, they pick it up, and then they're essentially walking back and forth around these two sticks to see who can make it the furthest before dropping. And the one with the furthest distance is the winner. And then they'll go through and rack up all your points to figure out who is the winner of over 200,000 people. And the last one was done in 2020 because of covid and it was a Russian soldier that won it. So they're still doing this till this day. Yeah. 
Or, well, I guess yeah, not I didn't really even think well, that. Yeah, they might actually uh, uh, do yeah. it again this year. Yeah, do they bring it? They are they doing it? it back. I think so because restrictions have been lifted. They televise it on oh, ESPN. Did Russia have <laughs> restrictions? I didn't even know that. Yeah, they had their shutdowns and whatnot. Uh, let's see. Outside of that, you know, there's a couple traditional dances that they do, but mostly it's just geared towards the younger generations now. Uh, oh, to touch on the mining and things like that, the Saha Republic produces 90% of Russian diamonds, Jeez. which is surprising because, like you said, they, they're looked at as second-class citizens. Yeah. That's probably why Russia gets them. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, the Saha people would just have them. They also have 24% of Russian gold. And then there's the uranium that they have, other various metals. Uh, pretty resource rich. Yeah, they are pretty say. resource rich. And it makes sense because, like, even in Yakut where it's cold, they have little tents to keep their cars warm. Because, heavens forbid, you shut your car off in that cold of weather. Because if you do, you're pretty much... You're walking everywhere. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're without a car everywhere. until it warms up. You're walking home. Uh, the younger generation is very uh, fashion conscious. So they do tend to dress as... They like to call it the more European style. Whereas the older generations tend to wear, you know, stick with your furs and skins and stuff they also uh like to deck themselves out in jewelry some things never change yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then with their foods it's largely traditional but they've gone more upscale try to make it like a michelin star type of quality and one of their most popular dishes is called stroganina it is like yeah it's that's thinly thinly sliced deep frozen fish that's seasoned with salt and pepper and then you take it and you dip it in a spicy dipping sauce so they have their own fish nuggies yeah oh, i mean lucky i'd try it sold me at the spicy sauce yeah yeah they won't re reveal what's in the sauce but there's a spicy <laughs> sauce <laughs> And you pour it out from a flask. Oh. Yeah, how much more Russian can you get on that? <laughs> that's... Yeah, that's pretty much it when it comes to all the modern day stuff. It's largely still the same. Yeah, they do. They keep a lot of their traditional values. Yeah. Which is yeah. cool considering how big the cities are built. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Yeah. The most traditional thing the younger generation does is... When they get married, they still go by complete traditional gowns and things like that. They don't do your modern day wedding dresses and mm. that's mm. cool. Yeah. And they eat fish nuggies. It's the best way I could have summed it up. Yeah. yeah. All right. Is that it? Yeah, I think that's so all the info. Nobody has anything else they want to say. I think so. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well. Thanks for tuning in.